All right, you can open up your word to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as our ushers bring around the note sheets and the pencils and Bibles. So if you need a Bible, make sure you raise your hand so that they'll know to bring one to your seat for you there. We have been working uh, verse by verse through this wonderful book of the, the Bible, gaining everything that we can along the way. We know that God has so much for us to learn and to grow from. And there is always more to be gained when we get into the Word. No matter whether you're reading it for the first time or reading it for the hundredth time, the Lord God will continue to grow us and will not allow the Word to return void as we study it together. So last week we spoke about running, particularly how a Christian is supposed to run. Now we weren't talking about running away. Sadly, many Christians have such fragile convictions about what they believe and why they believe it, that they run away at the first sign of opposition. It seems to be the only kind of running the church does sometimes. Paul wasn't talking about running away last week when he said that the church are to be ready to run with aim and focus, run in a disciplined manner. He was talking about running towards something, not running away from something. Rather, he was telling us to run towards someone, namely Christ Jesus himself, who is the true prize for those who are running for Christ. May we run our lives in such a way that the the prize that we receive for running is a closer walk with Jesus, a better understanding of what He loves and what He desires for His people. Though the analogy that Paul made last week was loosely framed on the Corinthians' familiarity with long-distance races that were common to the Isthmian Games that were held every other year in Corinth, the point of the connection was not that we should somehow be in competition to one another. It's not a race that I'm trying to beat you at or that you're trying to beat me at. Rather, the emphasis was on the personal discipline that is necessary for any athlete to get the most out of his or her body, a kind of mental and spiritual focus that vigorously resists any distraction or any temptation to laziness, that might cause an athlete to be hindered in their pursuits and in their endeavors. So with that same theme in mind, that should still be lingering in our thoughts, Paul is going to advance our thinking on the topic today by urging us to consider some of the situations or scenarios in which a Christian might find themselves hindered while running the good race. So we are open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're starting a new chapter today. We're going to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown at the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Led by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul can see that a look back at the heritage that they are now a part of will give the Corinthian Christians a better understanding of where they stand now. For the New Covenant saint, the story of Israel, it is our heritage. It is not just a history. It's not just an example of other kinds of people in different times that went through somewhat similar things that we can relate to. It is a heritage by, from which we draw a story that we are a part of. What is the difference between a heritage and a history? A heritage is passed on directly to us. We belong to it. It is not a third-party example that we can make use of in some illustrative way. Rather, it is a story that we are per, uh, personally connected to. We are invested in this story because it speaks of our forefathers. Now, in Christ, we have a heritage that can benefit us, both in instruction and in negative example. This is clearly not just a Jewish history. Those who are in the New Covenant have been grafted into the root of Israel and are indeed now numbered as a part of the true Israel. And we see this communicated in various places in Scripture, such as Romans chapter 11, where it says in verses 17 and 18, but if some of the branches were broken off, and it's speaking of Israel as a root, a root that is nourished by the truth of God, the things that he has revealed to them, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches if you are. Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So the Apostle Paul in that letter to those in Rome, most of whom were Gentiles, is trying to give them an understanding of how the heritage of Israel is now their heritage. He speaks about the fact that God had, had planted a people for himself, that he had grown them up, that he was making them fruitful, and that these Gentiles who did not have by blood a heritage with Israel were nonetheless made the spiritual descendants of Israel, were grafted into this root system. Now, in horticulture, if you are growing a tree that has a strong root system, it's in a good area, it gets lots of sun, and there's another tree perhaps that is in too much shade, it's not bearing a lot of fruit because the conditions aren't right, maybe the soil's been stripped of its nutrients, or maybe there's been something introduced into the groundwater that is poisoning that plant, you can cut branches off of this tree that's in bad soil, and you can cut a branch off of the tree that has good roots and graft the other wild branch in. Uh, they make a notch, they put it together, and then there's a, a binding element, usually some sort of support and some tape. And over time, the cells of the branch begin to form a bond with those in the branch that they are grafted onto. And everything that that branch needs, the water and the nutrients, becomes right up through the root system, fueling that branch so that it might produce fruit and be fruitful. So you can actually have a tree with different kinds of fruit on it growing on the same tree. And that is the kind of diversity that God creates when he calls a Gentile people, a people of various nations and backgrounds, and says, trust in Jesus Christ, the one hope of salvation, and I will make you a part of who we are. 
We can also see this in Romans chapter 2, verses 26 through 29, where it talks about how no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. In other words, one who follows the law in a superficial way, who might be circumcised and might keep the dietary requirements, but is not in their hearts dedicated to the true God. We see it in Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9 where it is those of faith who are counted as sons of Abraham, not those of genetic descendancy, but those who trust in the way that Abraham trusted. We see it in Galatians again in chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, where it says that surely circumcision doesn't matter. This outward sign of the Old Testament covenant wasn't what was important to God. What matters is a new birth. That someone who has seen their sin has thrown themselves at the mercy of God and has trusted in His provision for redemption and faithfulness. They are the Israel of God. They are truly the chosen people of the Lord. We see it again in Philippians 3.3 where God looks to a church of mixed descent and says, We, the church, are the circumcision who worship by the Holy Spirit, who give glory to Jesus Christ, who put no confidence in their flesh and in their ability to keep the law of God, but put all of their confidence in Christ who actively fulfilled the law, who kept every bit of it in his perfect life on earth. Now, this is not replacement theology. Some hear these these arguments that we are now the true Israel of God along with Uh, ancient Israel and those who have been called before us. And they say, you're trying to do away with Israel. Those promises were forever. No, this is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. This is God keeping his promises that were made to Abraham. Don't forget that the covenant with Abraham included a promise that from his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. That people of various descents and backgrounds would turn and see the faithfulness of God's chosen people and would then have faith themselves, drawn by God into a new relationship with their creator. So this is not replacement theology. This is fulfillment theology. Drawing from this heritage, Paul gives us a picture of a people who were chosen by God, who were cared for by God, but who nonetheless failed to honor God by living according to the gracious gifts that God had given to them in love. And so if we look at this passage carefully and with with an analytical eye, we can see that it divides very neatly into two balanced parallel sections. Verses 1 through 4 shares with us the advantages that God had given to his covenant people. uses the old covenant people, the heritage of Israel, as an example for us to all these ways that God had shown his love and favor to them. And then when we get to verses 6 through 10, we're going to see the mistakes that that people made despite the advantages that they had been given. So we're going to spend a lot of time this morning uh, bouncing around in Exodus and in Numbers. A lot of people, when they're reading through the Bible, they, they don't want to read through Numbers for some reason. Numbers is rich with important information about how God deals with his people. So we're going to look at some of that this morning. And so let's look at this first section, verses 1 through 4, which again, is the advantages that God has given to his covenant people. Four advantages are listed. Now, there are many others, probably countless other advantages. But the four that Paul wants us to see here emphasize the corporate nature of the advantages. We know that because each of them is marked by a reference to all of the people of Israel. Keep an eye on that language as we go through. The first one is as such. They were all 
under the cloud. All under the cloud. Now this is a clear reference to the way that God personally guided the Israelites away from their slavery in Egypt. Remember they had been ruled by the oppressive hand of the Egyptian pharaoh for 400 years. And God through Moses brought redemption, rescued them out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness. But he didn't just say your chains are free, go do whatever you want. God had a plan for these people. He was making them a people for his own glory, for himself. And so he gives them direction. Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22. And the Lord went before them by day in the pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So you see what God is doing here is the pillar of cloud was a startling and a powerful sign that the presence of God was with them and it was giving them direction. He was leading them. Now, my wife and I, after the service, are going to go on a road trip. We're going to set out for a three-day-long trip across the United States. And my, mom, my, my wife knows my sense of direction, and I'm sure she wishes that there was a pillar of cloud to direct us by day and a pillar of fire by night because I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Um, the Israelites were prone to wander as well. God knew that he couldn't just say, go out in the wilderness and do some righteous things and glorify me. He needed to give them direction. He needed to give them instruction. And so that is exactly what he did. This applied to the whole group of people rescued from Egypt, not just a few. All of them compromised the nation of Israel. Again, all were under the cloud. They were given direction by God. They were not sent out to wander on their own. God did not invite the people to guess at what he desired for them or what he wanted from them. He said, here is how you're going to be my people. He dictated it to them. He instructed them through Moses so that there would be no doubt about what he desired. He clarified his covenant with them. Now, how are we to run this race? Remember, we were talking about this race, this, il this illustration still fresh in our minds. We're not to run as one who runs aimlessly, right? That's what Paul taught us last week. Don't just run off somewhere with no destination. We're to see what God wants for us by looking at his scripture and run straight for that. Let all the other destinations in the world fall to the side. Let us singularly focus ourselves on what God has told us he wants for us. A race is not a nice meandering walk where we just look at the scenery and let our feet take us wherever we'll go. A race has a destination and the Lord sets that destination. Second favor that God shows to the people of Israel, not only did all exist under the cloud in his direction, but all passed through the sea. All passed through the sea. This is Exodus 14, verses 19 through 22. And then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went be behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So God directed them. And at one point he directed them to what seemed like a dead end. 
There's this great multitude of people who can progress no further because of the body water that laid before them. But God made a provision for his people. By miraculous sign, there was no doubt that God was procuring this special way. They could never have taken that route if God had not intervened. So to accomplish God's unstoppable decree, not only does he overcome the might of the nations, He's able to overcome Egypt and their power and dominion that they thought they had over Israel. But God was also overcoming the might of nature itself. This geographical boundary was not a boundary for the Lord. With a word, His will is done. And the people can see exactly what He desires for them to do. Move forward, my people. Go in the direction I called you. Even when it seems there is no way, I will make a way for you. Third provision. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is a poetic way of saying that Israel had entered into binding covenant with God, Moses serving as the federal head of that particular covenant. We know what a federal head is. God covenants with his people. He enters into a specific relationship with them. That relationship has boundaries and stipulations. Okay? We know that that's how God works, and he always works through a federal head. So Moses here is acting as the representative in that covenant. Adam was the federal head of the covenant of works in the garden. The Abrahamic covenant had a federal head. It was Abraham, right, where the promises were made to the nations. And so here, Moses is serving as the federal head of this particular covenant. They became immersed in the promises and parameters of that covenant, that holy arrangement of promise. That's what the word baptism means, immersion, right? They became immersed in these truths. Now, we want to be careful here. This is not a technical explanation of baptism. You might say, well, in baptism, don't you have to get wet? Almost seems as though the Egyptian soldiers were the ones that were baptized as the Red Sea came down upon them and crushed them, right? Now, they were baptized only unto death, not unto new life. But here we see that Moses is the federal head of a covenant that brings people out of a slavery and into a freedom into a life where they are now immersed in God. They're no longer under the thumb of Egypt, but they're under the sovereign reign of God himself. So we should avoid drawing too many technical conclusions about baptism from this passage. But it is a parallel, and it parallels something very specific. It's going to not only parallel here in the third favor, but in the fourth display of favor that God gives. These are a parallel to the sacraments by which the people of God are identified with him and how they experience fellowship with him. The connection that Paul makes between Israel and the church in Corinth are designed to draw attention to sacramental parallels. Israel had a kind of baptism of their own. They were immersed in the promises given to them by Moses. They had a kind of communion also of their own. We're going to see that here in the fourth point. Our sacraments point back to these events. Those sacraments pointed forward to the fulfillment of those events in the new covenant. So the fourth favor that God shows to his people is that all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. What does that make you think of? should make you think of the Lord's table. The sacraments are the ways that God provides regularly for his people under the new covenant. When we see someone come forward in baptism, they're pointing out that their life is now immersed in Christ, that they're under a new covenant with Jesus as the head of the covenant, they belong to him now. He's now the only federal head they need. They're not under Moses. They're not under Abraham. They're under Christ. And as they eat out of the bread, or they eat the bread, and they drink out of the cup of communion, 
They're confessing that the life, death, and burial of Jesus is what sustains them. It's what keeps them going. It is the means by which they have this heavenly connection with God. You see the beautiful parallels God weaves throughout his scripture. We're talking about thousands of years disconnecting these two events, and yet they're so similar and so united. So these people needed a food. They were in the wilderness. They're no longer in Egypt anymore. They needed provision. And God provided physical food. And he does it in a radically spiritual way, doesn't he? Exodus 16, 2 through 4. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled about, against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, my kids said that to me the other day. I wish that they were... <laughs> no, I'm just joking. They, this is how people act, right? We get so used to blessing so quickly that we find any small thing that's a problem and we, we grumble about it. God had just provided for their needs. He had just freed them from slavery. Don't you think he's got the power to overcome a lack of food? The fact that there's no supermarket in the desert? God can make it happen, and yet they in their lack of faith are complaining and grumbling against him. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Exodus 16.31 says, Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So God gives them what they need. He gives them a spiritual food that fulfills their, spirit, their physical need for sustenance. They needed water too. No, God provided physical water in a spiritual way again. He did so first by making bitter water into sweet water. Exodus 15, 24 through 25, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? They're really good at grumbling, these Israelites. We are too, aren't we? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and Moses threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So this bitter water that was not fit for human consumption, it was probably uh, contaminated in some way, God made it possible for Moses to supernaturally cleanse the water so that they could, they could drink of it and be relieved. When there was no water, when there wasn't even a bitter stream, God provided water for them, and he did it through a rock, through a supernatural spring that bubbled forth at the command of God. Exodus 17.6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So you see the sacramental nature of this eating and this drinking, just as we come before the Lord's table and are thankful for the fact that He is like our spiritual food, and He is like the spiritual drink that satiates our soul and our hunger and our thirst for righteousness, so too did these Israelites have a way, a means by which God showed them, your essentials are in my hands. I give you what you need. And that's much more than just superficial food and drink. As a branch that is disconnected from the vine will not get what it needs to survive, so too are we weakened when we are not participating in the regular means of grace that God gives to us. This is a vital part of the way that we run our race. When we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of how God made us who we are in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10.4,
Paul makes an interesting comment about the source of their water. I don't know if you caught this. He said, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. How was Jesus the rock? They didn't even know the name of Jesus at the time that Moses is trying to get this large mass of people through the desert. They were not even anticipating a perpetual king yet. They had not had any earthly king. They did not have the promise of David yet, which said that there would be a king on the throne for them forever. So how was Jesus the rock? He's the rock because even before he took on flesh, the sacrifice of Jesus was applied preemptively to those covenant Jews who were faithful to their God. How are men saved from sin? Only by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that, that applies to those who came before Christ as well. Because God is outside of time, He's not bound in the same way that we are. The act of sacrifice that Christ made on the cross preemptively covered the sins of those who would walk in truth with God even before they knew to anticipate Messiah. So the rock that sustained them was a sign. It wasn't the actual fount of Christ's blood. It was a sign that pointed forward to Christ and this Messiah who would have His blood spilled for the sake of sinful people like us. The Old Testament will sometimes shed light on the New Testament, but largely we need to interpret the Old Testament in terms of what the New Testament reveals to us. This is because God's revelation is progressive. He gives us more and more information as He goes. And so we look back at that passage, and if Christ says through the Apostle Paul that Jesus was that rock in the wilderness that was with them, we have to understand that in some way Jesus was literally sustaining the people in their wanderings through the wilderness. The Old Covenant Israelites had so many advantages. We've just looked at four here this morning. God had voluntarily entered into covenant with them. He didn't have to do that, but He chose to in His grace and in His mercy. How should Israel have responded to these wonderful advantages? They should have had gratitude towards God. It should have spurred them on to a greater trust in Him, a trust that led to obedience to His law and respect for His commands. There should have been a holy response from the people. But verse 5 offers a sobering reminder for us here in 1 Corinthians 10 that all of those blessings did not guarantee that the people of Israel would respond to God obediently. Verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And make sure you understand what's being, saying, what's being said there. God was not pleased, and so He overthrew them in the wilderness. It's not like they fought some battle in the wilderness and they were overthrown, and so God wasn't happy with their performance. No, it's saying here that because they disrespected the covenant that God had brought them into, because they didn't rejoice in these advantages that they had been given, but instead let their faithfulness wander to other false gods, God was not pleased with them. And so many of those people who wandered in the wilderness never made it into the, the Holy Land. The great majority, in fact, of national Israel would disrespect God's law. And there were consequences to that, as we're going to see. Remember, this passage that we're studying today divides neatly into two balanced sections. We've seen the advantages that God had given His covenant people. Now let's look at the mistakes that they made despite, despite the many advantages that they had been given. Now we might want to also note here before we begin the second section 
that not all of the people made these mistakes. Paul showed four blessings that God had given to all of Israel. And now the language changes. Now Paul will show us four corresponding failures, each identified with the phrase, and some of them. Keep an eye out for that repetition here, okay? And some of them. What that indicates to us is there has always and will always be a segment of the people who identify themselves with God who are truly faithful to him. There will never not be a remnant of God or of God's people, of people who are faithful, who are not perfect people, but who are committed to him and stay within the boundaries of what he has commanded. So look at that phrase and some of them as we look at four failures that are cataloged for us in this heritage that belongs to the church of God. First of all, they, they come in forms of warnings here. The Apostle Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As some of them were. Exodus 32, 1 through 6, is when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. This is one of those times when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. God was speaking to him, giving him instruction so that he, they, he could then in turn go down the mountain, reveal and relay to the people what God had said to him. So he's been up on this mountain for a time. The people grow impatient. They don't want to wait for him any longer. So it says that the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And he made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. Now, not all of the people fell into this debauchery and this wickedness. Here they have so quickly abandoned the true God. They have created a God of their own that they can worship, that they can in some ways control. And they're making offerings to him, but they're doing it the way they want to do it. They're not following the instructions of the Lord in this activity. Some of them failed to remain faithful to God. God's anger in response burned very hot against them. Moses pleaded for the fate of Israel, not primarily for their own good, but for the great name of Yahweh. Moses was concerned that if he were to get rid of these people, Israel, that the Egyptians would then scoff at God and say, how... How, what kind of a God is this who rescues his people but then can't keep his act together in the desert and they all fall away from him and he kills them all? Moses doesn't want the great name of God sullied in the eyes of the Egyptians. And so he pleads for his brothers and sisters and God shows mercy on these people. Moses himself was angered. He respects the Lord God. He's one of the few that did not follow in this debauchery. So he shows his righteous anger at the people when he comes down from the mountain He breaks the tablets of the law, signifying to them that they had broken the law of God even before they were given the laws. And then he takes the golden calf that they had been worshiping and he grinds it into dust. And then he mixes it with water and he makes the Israelites drink it. Is this a power play? No, this is is interesting because we just read about a different situation where there was a bitter water that God made sweet for them so that they could drink of it. 
And now God takes this perfectly good water. Moses grinds up this, this poison, this idolatry, puts it in there so they have to taste the bitterness of what they have done to God. And about 3,000 who were involved in this rebellion were put to the sword by the Levites, by the people who are in charge of worship in Israel. 3,000 people. Verse 35, And the Lord sent a plague onto the people because of the golden calf that they had worshipped. And then a plague sweeps across the land and more destruction is done. So despite the advantages, despite the fact that they had communion with God through means that He had provided, this manna and this water and these great reasons for them to rejoice, they found a reason to grumble and they went against the commands of God. Some disobeyed. Notice, all of them suffered to some degree. Just because there's a remnant doesn't mean they're exempt from the sanctions that come against God's church. Sometimes there are times when people are disobedient to the Lord in a church and the whole church struggles because of it. We see this in the first chapters of Revelation where God sent messages to the seven different churches in Asia Minor and warned some of them about the disobedience that they were going through, recognizing in each of those places that they were true believers, but also warning them that they did not get their eyes back on Christ, if they did not start running the race like they were supposed to, that some of them were even in danger of not being in church anymore. So that is the first example of Israel's failure. We see another one. It says, by Paul writing here of, of the, their heritage, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. Again, there's that phraseology, as some of them did. Numbers 25, 1 through 3. While Israel lived in uh, Shittim, the people began to whore against the daughters of Moab, or whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Already, we know that this behavior is not unheard of among the Corinthian church. We read in the first verse of chapter 5, that there was a man in Corinth who was married to his dad's wife, which is a great sin in Israel, and no one's doing anything about it. They were already struggling. They were already slipping in this regard that the purity that God had called them to was not being followed with any kind of reverence or respect. And this is also where we begin to see how the warnings about food that are okay to eat and foods that are not okay to eat is not just about meat sold in the market as we have talked about in a previous chapter. It's also about these pagan festivals and celebrations that were a part of the Corinthian culture. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, remember? Some of the Corinthian believers who had come out of those pagan cultures still really liked to go to the festivals. They wanted to still go and eat the feasts and they wanted to see the entertainment and be involved with the cultural element of that because that's how they stayed connected to friends and family. But Paul is developing an argument against that activity. Not all, but some of those festivals involved temple prostitution and immoral sexual acts that were thought to stir up their fake gods to promote fertility in the crops and in the economy. So the Corinthians had no business, these Corinthian Christians had no business participating or even witnessing this kind of sexual immorality in those feasts. And today, 2,000 years later, the people of God are being lured away from faithfulness by the desires of the flesh again. Namely, a sexuality that desires something that seems to the people of the culture today like freedom, when in reality, it is spiritual chains. 
Everywhere you look, you see evidence of it. The whole month of June has been designated as Gay Pride Month. And so this activity, which the scripture so plainly condemns as an aberration of God's gift of sexuality to us, as disobedience to his law, is being flaunted about. It's being celebrated. People have determined to do what is right in their own eyes. But they now not only applaud those who sin in such ways, they declare immoral anyone who would challenge the morality of what they're doing. Tolerance has taken the place of love as the Western world's premier virtue. So it's not so important to be loving anymore. You've got to be tolerant. That's what really matters. The culture is trying with all their might to change the aim of the race. That we would not run for Christ, but that we would run for some socially engineered kind of virtue and ethic that makes you a good person because you tolerate what everyone else does around you. That is not truth, friends. We cannot allow godly love to be displaced and pushed to the side. We must maintain a commitment to biblical standards regarding sexuality and gender and everything that God declares to be holy to us. For those Israelites in Numbers 25 who participated in this sinful immorality, there were dire consequences. The chiefs, meaning the elders, who allowed this terrible sin in Israel, were hanged publicly in the square so that they could be an example to others that we must cling to the Lord God and not let the temptations of the world around us draw us away and defame His name. Those who participated in these sexually immoral acts were put to the sword. In blatant defiance of Moses and to God's great anger, an Israelite brought a Midianite prostitute into his tent at the same time that Moses was calling for mourning among the people. And it was a, a son of a priest, Phinehas, who rose and immediately took a spear in his hand and pierced through these two who were committing a sexually indecent act. Action needed to be taken against these people. Nonetheless, a plague still followed, and 23,000 people died. This is Numbers 25, if you want to go and study it this week on your own. Now, this raises an important question. We think about the fact that so many were called to follow after God, and yet so many of them did not make it into the Holy Land, you might start to ask, what does this mean to us in the church today? How dire are these cautions to us? Can a believer be disqualified from the race? And this is a little tricky to answer because the, the truth of the matter is, a true believer cannot be disqualified from the race. A true believer will endure to the end. The fact that he finishes the race is proof that God had actually changed his heart. And that is why when we go through a, a new member's process, when somebody wants to become a member of the church, we sit down with them as elders. We talk with them about their background and about what point in their life did they truly trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're not the judge of the heart, but we have to make responsible evaluations so that we can urge people to true faith, so that people don't grow up around the culture of Christianity and think, oh yeah, I'm a believer, I'm, I'm a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, when in reality their heart doesn't really belong to Jesus. So we talk with people, we ask them to describe to us what is the gospel and, and how do you believe Jesus saved you? What, where is your confidence that when you, your life here on earth is over, you'll be with God in heaven? And if there are confusions there, then we help to sort those things out and we give counsel. But the truth of the matter is not all who profess 
to believe in Christ truly put their faith in him. Those who truly do trust the Lord will endure to the end. That endurance does not earn them salvation or heaven. It is the evidence of what Christ has earned for them on the cross. A true believer will persevere. But even we are not all true believers in this room, friends. No matter how many steps we try to take to establish a meaningful membership and to try to be careful so that people don't slip through life thinking they're believers when they don't really even understand the gospel, nevertheless, some will be among us who think they are saved and yet they do not have an authentic faith in Jesus Christ. The way that we respond to our sin is the ultimate proof of whether we are in Christ or in Adam. Two different federal heads. Are you in the new covenant, the federal head of this covenant being Jesus Christ? Do you believe that your sins have earned you damnation and judgment? Do you believe that Jesus Christ deserved no judgment, that he lived a perfect life, that he kept every bit of God's law without exception? Do you believe that the Son of God went and voluntarily laid his own life down as a substitute for sinners like us? that we who trust in him might have our record wiped clean by his suffering, and that with new life now, we can have the righteousness of Christ and walk in such a way that we are pleasing to him. Do you believe that? Are you in this covenant, the covenant with Adam or with Jesus? Or are you still in the old covenant, the covenant that was headed up by Adam, who was told, keep this commandment and live, eat of this tree of the fruit of of knowledge of good and evil, and you will die. And he ate of the fruit and died. Are you in that covenant? It's the covenant we're all born into naturally. It is the default covenant of humanity. But through Christ, we can move from this covenant to this one. If you are in the new covenant with with Christ, then you will preserve. You will make it to the end. Because when you sin, you will not be able to stay in it. You will not be able to persevere in your sinfulness. The Spirit will convict. You will begin to understand the weight of what you've done. You will repent of it. But if you are in Adam, you will persevere in your sin. You will refuse to repent of it. It will remain your identity until the end. So this has incredible repercussions in the church. When we look at the heritage of Christ, we don't see radically different schema. We see a God who says, Be faithful to me and trust in me, for I am your salvation. And if you forsake me and worship another then you do not have salvation and safety in me. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 15 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue. See that word? How important it is. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So there will be evil imposters. There will be people who believe that they are saved, but are doing great damage and harm to the church. That's going to happen. We have to be ready for those things. But those who trust in Christ alone and keep firm to him, through ups and downs of life, they stay firm in Christ. These are the true people of God. Let's look at a third failure that these uh, Israelites experienced in the wilderness. We must not put Christ to the test as, as some of them did. Now again, how can an Old Testament 
Israelite put Christ to the test because Christ is God, right? Turn with me to Numbers 21. Numbers 21 in your Old Testament. As we're going to see, God instructed Moses how to save the people by creating an undeniable image of the cross to come to. A picture of the true salvation that would one day come. One that would bring a temporary relief and a point to a permanent relief that God would provide through His Son, Jesus Christ. Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Or, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up from out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he comes and sees it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. If you don't read that Old Testament passage with an eye towards Christ and Calvary, then it's extremely confusing, isn't it? Extremely confusing. Why would God make, have them make an image out of bronze when they just got in trouble for making an image out of gold, right? Well, this is different. This is different. Why did they make a serpent and put a serpent on a pole and raise it up? What does a serpent represent? Represents our rebellion and sin. Represents the devil. Christ, though perfect, became sin for us so that we might not know sin. He became our wickedness. He became like a curse and was lifted up on a pole, on a cross and crushed for our iniquity. So this is a very clear picture, a pointing forward what we would call a type of what God would do in the future. And as these snake-bitten Israelites are burning in extreme pain, they're very uncomfortable because they've been attacked by these serpents, they come and they look upon this pole, and they see their sin up on that pole, and then their suffering goes away. Their pain is erased because their iniquities are put upon that serpent, that serpent, being Christ. So, do we have the right to put God to the test? We do not. He is the judge. He is the king over us. And so we don't have the right to grumble and complain and to tell God that he needs to do things differently. Rather, he dictates to us not only how we should live, but when we fail to do that, how we are redeemed and how we are brought near to him again. A fourth example, as we are short on time. We are not to grumble as some of them did. Numbers 14, 1 through 3, And all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You know the refrain, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. They think back to their slavery somehow fondly, even though now they are free people. Why is the Lord bringing us out into this land to fall by the sword? And then Numbers 14, 26 through 32, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. 
He goes on to give a, a glimpse of hope there. Though they will fall in the wilderness, their little ones, whom they complained about and said, our kids are going to die out here in the wilderness, says, your wilderness I will bring, or your kids I will bring out of this wilderness and into the place of promise. They shall know the land that you have rejected. This is a humbling result for them. God had loved Israel well. He had blessed them with tremendous blessings. He had established covenant with them. He had secured their freedom from Egypt. He had revealed himself through these miraculous signs, through the revealed word of the prophets and the fathers. He had given them the law. All of these things were great. But these external benefits did not ensure that the people would not fall away from him. Have you considered the extent of the blessings that you have in Jesus if you've put your faith and trust in him? Do you understand what a position of advantage you have if you call upon the name of the Lord? Your debt owed to God has been paid in full. Not only the things that you have done which were wicked, but the things that you will do that you don't even know about yet, God has redeemed you from them. You have forgiveness every day in Christ. You have great freedom from the penalty of sin, yes, but also freedom to do what is right and holy. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God Himself who empowers you to be eternally useful for the kingdom of God. Consider the extent of the blessings you've been given, church. This new covenant in Christ is in every way better than the old covenant that was fulfilled in Jesus. It's no longer external. It is in no way superficial. It is the circumcision of the heart. It is a new life in Christ. But do not think for a second that Jesus suffered in order to establish a way for you to disregard the law utterly and live by your sin nature all the while getting away with it scot-free because you're part of a covenant. The new covenant is in no way a shelter for our sin. And that is how these Corinthians were behaving. They were acting as though, thanks to Jesus, we now have sins washed away. We have redemption. We have a new identity. We have power and belonging. We are called by the name of Christ. We have an inheritance. And since the power of the cross is so great, what does it matter if I go and eat at one of these pagan festivals and, you know, just dabble in a little idol worship? What does it matter if I I let my sexual standards go a little bit and, and do what the world is? It doesn't matter. I've got Christ. I'm a part of this covenant. The new covenant is in no way a shelter for our sin. He did not save us from our sin to give us a free pass to be more sinful. He saved us from our sin so that our sin would have no power over us, friends, so that we could walk in the truth that he has given to us. We cannot become antinomians due to the grace of God. An antinomian cares nothing for the law and thinks that they have absolute and utter freedom to do whatever they want now because of the blank check that Christ wrote on the cross. Do you see how the church today treats Jesus with the same kind of contempt and manipulation? That God's people, or at least those who call themselves God's people, can on one hand say that the word means everything to us, but on the other hand, can bend and capitulate and adapt to the world and let the world dictate what is right and good and holy in the boundaries of their own churches. Christian, your baptism, your taking of the Lord's Supper is not some vaccine against rebellion. You must stay focused. We have a race to run here. These sacraments can be a means of grace, but the heart has to be engaged or they can become like empty actions to us. If you are in Christ, you are secure in Him. But if you are in Christ, you will endure with Him as well. 
So listen to the words of the apostle here and endure. Run this race with diligence. Who reigns over the covenant that we are in? Jesus does. If you love him, how will you express that love for him? You'll do it, according to his words, by obeying his commandments. If you take a wrong turn and become distracted or hindered in the race, how should you deal with that? By identifying the mistake, repenting of it, and trusting again in Christ. It is likely that the Corinthians had argued that their participation in these pagan festivals with their open connection and worship to false gods, with their emphasis on gluttony and sexual immorality, and their frequent encouragement to, uh, to be uh, hostile to the things of God, that they didn't think it was that big of a deal. They had identified with Christ through their baptism and were partaking regularly of the table, so they thought they were covered. And Paul is saying no. As chapter 11 will reveal, even their taking of the Lord's table was flawed. So let us not be unaware of this inherited heritage, friends, as we look back at what Israel did and how they fell. But let us instead be committed to be like that remnant that clings to Christ and trusts in Him and refuses to be pried away from our Love to the Lord God. These experiences were important. These advantages that God had given to the Israelites, but they did not preserve them from error. With most of them, God was not pleased. And these events come to us like an example to help us to understand the dangers of growing lax and lazy in the way that we follow after our God. So in light of the failures of the fathers, the Corinthian church needed to take heed. Do not desire evil. Do not be idolaters. Do not indulge in sexual compulsion or test Christ. Do not grumble about your station, but have confidence and faith in Him. Let's pray, and then I'm going to invite the worship team up. Lord, we thank You for Your amazing grace, and we ask that even now as we conclude our service, that You would help us to recognize, Lord, the importance of not allowing any other object to become the the aim of our run and uh, the aim of our race, Lord God. Help us to run as ones pointed towards Christ and Christ alone. We thank you, God, for your patience with us. We do not look back to Israel and scoff at them as if we are somehow so much more faithful than they are, Lord God. There is no temptation that has afflicted the people of God except that which is common to man. So let us be humble in heart and let us recognize that we too can become distracted. But Father, we trust in better things. We know that as we keep this word before us and as we come to you in prayer daily, Lord, throughout the day, that you can keep us focused, that you can help us to discipline our bodies to do what is right for the Lord. And so, Father, Lord, let this be the outflow of the changed heart that you have put into us. We are grateful for you and for your forgiveness. Again, please be with our representatives as we send them out. We love you and thank you for all that you do in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.